Lovely to see you all. If we've never met before, my name's Colin. I'm part of the team here at KXC. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've already been broken in worship this morning. So I'm feeling completely exhausted already stepping up here to do this. But the Lord's been moving this morning in a way in worship that I haven't experienced in a long time. So I'm really excited to see what he wants to do this morning. And um, at the minute, we're in, in between preaching series. And um, so we finished one last week. We're going to be kicking one off in a couple of weeks' time. But just as we... As we wind down the summer, guys, it's sad, believe it or not, we've only got a couple of weeks of August left, and then September's kicking off, and it's all going to be happening again. And this week, I've just been praying and asking the Lord, what is it that you want for us at KXC in this season coming up? What is it that you might want to invite us into? And I just really strongly felt that the Lord was inviting us into a new season of fresh worship um, this term coming. So are you up for jumping into that today? Yeah, lovely. So I thought, yeah, I'm up for that as well. So we're going to base ourselves in the book of 1 Kings 18. And what we witness here is without doubt the greatest worship showdown in history. It is, it, I mean, it's the Royal Rumble. So are you ready to get in the ring? Oh, that was a terrible dad joke. Terrible dad joke. It missed so many. So a little, bit of, um, a little bit of context for this book and this story that we're going to jump into. So we're, we're jumping into the story of the Israelites, and they've just been delivered out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they finally entered the Promised Land. They've seen some pretty miraculous stuff in their time, right? These should be a people who are full of faith. They've seen the Lord move the plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, you name it. They've seen it. And so at the start of this book of Kings, King David is ruling and he's united the 12 tribes of Israel into one kingdom. Okay? And this books of First and Second Kings, I think they were originally, well, they were originally one book, um, but they've been split into two in our Bibles. And they tell the story of all the kings who followed after King David. Um, clear? That makes sense? So that's what these books are all about. And it starts with King Solomon and First Kings. And in the first couple of chapters, he builds the temple in Jerusalem, a place where the glory of the Lord is to dwell, where his people are to gather or to worship. It's a pretty excellent start for a king. And throughout the course of the book, there's around 40 kings mentioned in total. There's 20 in northern Israel, and there's 20 in Judah. And they're basically ranked by how good they were. It's a little bit like an Ofsted report for the kings of the time. And... They were ranked around these two criteria. Number one, did they worship the God of Israel alone? And number two, did they rid themselves of idolatry? These were the two criteria that they were checked on. I don't know, does that sound familiar to you? Does, does those two criteria, do they sound familiar in the Bible? I don't know if you look back to Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments. The first one, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. So basically, these criteria are the first and second commandments. And this is how these kings are being judged. So, I've got a little Sunday school test for you. And no Sunday school test is complete without some prizes. So hold on. Wow. No. All right. I've got two prizes up for grabs here. You can choose them. You can choose them. So, 40 kings in total, 20 in northern Israel, 20 in Judah. And they're ranked on these criteria. Northern Israel, out of the 20... 
How many do you think, it's going to be hands up, we're going to go for first hand up. How many do you think were ranked good in northern Israel? Phil? Three, incorrect. <laughs> yeah? Five, incorrect. Northern Israel. Yes, Luke? Zero is correct. Ding, ding, ding. Just for you. You'll enjoy this. There we go. 20 bad. All right, Luke, we've got a Tony Chocoloni bar or Werther's Original. What's it going to be? I picked the most random things I possibly could. He doesn't want any of them. Which? Tony's. For you. Oh, man, I'm really sorry. That could have been dangerous. All right, so northern Israel, 20 kings. None of them stood up to the criteria. Not one. All right, how about Judah, the southern kingdom? Um, how many? Hands up. Yes. Five. It's close, but it's not the one at the back. One, it's close, but it's not the one. Jeremy? Six, it's also close, but it's not the one. Yeah. Four is correct. Oh, no, it's actually, I'm wrong. It's eight. But, mate, I'll give that to you anyway. I actually forgot how many. It's actually eight. But, um, but mate, you can have four. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. Um, got lost in the, I got lost in the joy of the game there a little bit. Um, so it was actually eight. So Judah was ranked a little bit better, some better kings, um, but still not quite good enough, right? And so here we have these 40 kings in total, and only eight actually worship the Lord God alone. Only eight rid themselves of idolatry. So what's the result? The result is by the end of 2 Kings, Israel has split into two kingdoms. Both have fallen. The temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built, it's been destroyed. The people of northern Israel, they've been driven into exile from Assyria. And the people of Judah have been driven into exile by the Babylonians. I mean, it's not looking good. These kings have not done a very good job. And here's the thing. The overarching story of kings and the overarching principle is this. Before God's concerned about our conduct, he's concerned about our worship. If we get our worship right, everything else will flow. And this is what he was saying over the people of Israel. And this was the thing that the kings did not do. And we see Israel's turmoil following. More than anything, God's interested in our worship. So, this is the story we're going to jump into today. Is 1 Kings chapter 18. That's just a little bit of the context. And we're going to look at an epic story around the king Ahab at the time. There's three things that we're going to look at today in particular, and it's the role of repentance and rebuilding for revival. Repentance and rebuilding for revival. But before we jump in, why don't I just pray and ask the Lord to come and speak. So Lord, we just humble ourselves before you now. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for scripture that speaks clearly. And we pray that you would come and speak through your word right now, God, that we would hear your voice hear your challenge, hear your call to us in this season. And you would come and have your way amongst us right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, King Ahab's in charge in the story. He's the man of the time in northern Israel. And, um, and this is what it basically says about Ahab. It says, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those gone before him. All right, good start. It says he considered it trivial to, consider, to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king who went beforehand. And it says he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. I mean, what a tall tale he's done. Not only this, the story also says he married Jezebel, who is the daughter of Ethbel. Ethbel, whenever you translate that Hebrew word, literally means with Baal. 
And so unsurprisingly, um, he starts to worship Baal because that's um, where his wife came from. And so he even built a temple for Baal to worship. And Jezebel sets out on a mission to kill all the Lord's prophets. I mean, it couldn't be going any worse here. He also made, just to top it off, it says he made an Asherah pole for the worship of the god Asherah. As if giving worship to one other god wasn't enough, he said, let's go for two, let's go for two. So, we get to chapter 18. And on top of that all, there's been a famine in the land for three years. I mean, it's literally going from bad to worse. But we're going to jump into the greatest worship showdown in history. So it's all going to be on the screen here. Follow along with this in the passage. And the prophet Elijah steps into the scene here. He's the only prophet of the Lord left. All the others have been killed. And he steps into the scene. And this is how it goes. Prepare yourself. It gets pretty, gets pretty juicy. So Ahab went to meet Elijah, starting at verse 16. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, I mean, the trash talk starts from the very beginning. It's like, is that you, troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. It's like, oh, straight in there, he goes for the family. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the balance. Now summon the, all the people from over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets of Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said, Absolutely nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450. He's totally outnumbered. So get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. I'll separate the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then, and this is the showdown, you call in the name of your God, I'll call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, this sounds good. So then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. I've jumped ahead a little bit in the story here. And they're saying, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. There was no one answered. And so they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah, continuing the trash talk, he began to taunt them. Amazing little point in the Bible here. He says, shout louder, he says. Surely he's a God. Come on. Perhaps, perhaps he's deep in thought. Or maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. Is he on the tube? Maybe he hasn't got any signal. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. So they didn't seem to get that this was a joke, so they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and, swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Can you imagine this scene? So midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But again, there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. So then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah, he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas, excuse me, of seed. 
I did a little Google just to see kind of how big a sea was. And um, what uh, Wikipedia told me is that it's roughly the size of 144 medium-sized eggs. So that is probably the, the most useless thing that Wikipedia has ever told anyone. But just so you have a picture in your mind, um, he, big, he dug a trench big enough to hold 288 medium-sized eggs. We'll continue. Um, he arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, he dials up the risk here, he says, fill four large jar jars with water, pour it on the offering and on the wood. As if this moment wasn't tense enough, he says, soak it. And he says, do it again. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. We're nearly here in the story. Don't worry, keep going. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Final few verses. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And it burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the wood, it burned up the stones, it burned up the soil, and it licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What a story. The ultimate showdown. Baal falls flat on his face and the Lord God reigns. What a story. Hallelujah. Now, the prophets of Baal have been completely let down, right? They did absolutely nothing to show for their love, for their efforts, for their dancing, for their cutting of themselves, nothing to show for it. And I don't know if you've ever been, been completely let down, because I certainly have. And I'm going to take us back on a little, a little journey back to 2009. And I was in, in university in Belfast, University of Ulster. Anyone study at University of Ulster in here? On my own. Good. Oh, was, one, was there one over there? Yes, be loud and proud of me, that's it, that's it. Um, so I studied electronic engineering. I'm a real geek at heart. And um, in second year of uni, I moved into a flat that we called the penthouse, even though it was only on the first floor out of four. Um, and I moved in there with five of my mates, and, um, and it was an absolute joy. And in second year, I'd been pursuing a particular love interest. Um, and for the sake of anonymity, um, we'll say her name was Mary. Um, and I'd been pursuing Mary. I'd been working hard. I'd been laying all the groundwork to ask Mary out on a date. And, you know, as I went about this, I'd been processing this with my flatmates, right? They were good lads, and I'd been, like, processing the highs and the lows of the dating journey. And they were really helping and not really supporting. Um, and this one day, out of the blue, I get a text from Mary. And I get a text saying this. Oh, I'm just nearby um, seeing a friend. Um, what are you up to this evening? And I was like, what? She has thrown out some bait, and I... <laughs> bit. I bit it right up. So I said, sure, yeah, I've got nothing on tonight. Cancelled all plans. <laughs> so I've got nothing on tonight. Why don't you, um, why don't you come on over and, um, and I'll cook you some dinner? Um, and to my delight, she said, yeah, that sounds great. I'll be over around half seven, eight. Bearing in mind, this was about four o'clock in the afternoon of that very day. So I went into overdrive. 
Bearing in mind, I lived in the penthouse with five boys in their 20s. I needed to clean this place fast. And I didn't have much time, but I had a spring in my step, and that's all I needed. And so I cleaned the flat. I blitzed the place like Kimanagi style, went for it. And it shone after I was finished. And then I went out to the shops. I bought some delicious food, some smoked salmon for starters, um, got some cheesecake, I think, for dessert. I mean, this was a big moment. I needed to perform. Um, and so I got home, cooked, the flat was perfect. And so the time came, half past seven, and here I was, the flat was perfect, smelling good, the, some scented candles in the corner, mood lighting was perfect, the right music was on, and half past seven passed, and I was like, that's fine. She said between half seven and eight, and but obviously I was just sitting on the sofa waiting. Um, but at half past seven passed, fine. Um, 7.40 passed. It's like, okay, we're still doing okay. Still, still a good bit of time. Feeling chilled. 7.50 passed. It's like, okay, no worries. It's like, it's still chilled. She said between half seven and eight. So we've still got 10 minutes. Um, can't look too keen, so we'll not text or anything. <laughs> eight, eight o'clock came, and, um, and I was getting a little bit shifty at this stage. I was like, okay, right. She still said between half seven and eight, so we're still in okay. Half, uh, 10 past eight came, and I decided, like, do you know what, I'll just send her a text just in case she's, she's maybe something's happened, she's not feeling well, she can't make it. And, um, and so I get a really swift reply a couple of minutes later. She says, so sorry, yeah, just on my way, I'm running late, X. I was like, whoo. <laughs> she's put the X in there. It's like, this is a good, good night. And so true to form, five minutes later, the doorbell rings. So I muster up my courage, flatten my check shirt at the time probably. And walk over to the door and proudly open it to see, standing there with a bunch of flowers, my housemates Jeff and Andrew. And they just said, expecting someone? I had been royally stitched up. I know, I know. I had been royally stitched up. I appreciate that level of concern. Because... Unknowns to me, unknowns to me, earlier in the week, Jeff, who's actually a minister, by the way, now. Um, it's worth pointing that out. Um, Jeff had got my phone. He'd swapped his numbers and Mary's numbers. And this was the days before iPhone, so there was no, like, train of messages to check. So I, get a, I had been basically led on by Jeff all week long. And so Jeff and Andrew waltzed into the flat, Spick and span, sparkling clean. They sat down at a perfectly cooked meal for two. And they made a mockery of me. An absolute mockery of me. And I was devastated. Devastated. All my hopes, all the dreams, the trips to the beach, the dogs, the kids. In an instant, gone. Absolutely gone. I'd been completely led on and completely let down. And here, back to the story. I know, how is that, that going to link back to the story I hear you tell? It does, it does. Because here we have the people of Israel, King Ahab, the prophets of Baal, and they've actually put their trust in something. They've put their worship in something. They've put their affection, their heart, their efforts, their literal blood, sweat, and tears into something which ultimately was never going to deliver. It was only ever going to lead them on and let them down. They continued their prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, and there was no response. There was no answer. No one even 
paid attention. Now, look, we might not be worshiping Baal here today, but equally, we give ourselves away to things that are only going to let us down all the time. We give our affection, we give our loves, our desires, we give them away to things that will never truly satisfy. And we begin to look for affirmation and value in so many places. But in the end, we find no answer, no response, and no one paying attention. Our misdirected loves, they lead us to misdirected lives. And I feel like today, there's an invitation from the Lord to wake up and recognize what is stealing our affection. What's stealing our worship in this moment? What's the dominant voice that you're listening to today? What's the dominant voice that you're speaking to? So when we give life over to anything other than the living God, we'll very quickly find that there's nothing there. Where have you been giving glory to worthless idols? Like so many of us know this in theory, right? I know this in theory. I've heard this a hundred times, but I still do it all the time. I get caught up in the latest hobby, the latest fad, the latest phase. Very few of you will know, but I've actually got like a Formula One set up in my attic with like a steering wheel and pedals <laughs> because I think if I can become as close to a Formula One driver in my attic, that I will somehow feel great about myself. That is true. I mean, that is costly to share that. My, my, um, your opinion of me has literally gone through the floor right there. But we look after these things that we think are going to fulfill something that we need, something like a little gap, a little space, but it, but it never does. So I think the Lord this morning is inviting us to a moment of recognition and repentance where we look at the things that we've been giving glory to and we say, oh, Lord, we're sorry. They're never going to satisfy. Only you will. Because God's jealous for our worship. Our whole life worship, not just our Sunday song here, as important as that is. He's jealous for our whole life worship. So let's recognize and repent this morning when our gaze is shifted from worshiping him to worshiping things that are worthless. So the prophets of Baal are a people left in silence, nothing to show and nowhere to go. And Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, steps in. And what's the first task that he does here in this context? It's beautiful. It says, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. I feel really strongly this morning that if we're to see a move of God in our lives, in our church, in our city, that we need to be a people who rebuild altars of worship that have been torn down? Could we be a people above all else who are so concerned with the worship of God and the glory of his name that we're ready to count the cost of what it is to get there? This was hard work. He did this on his own. And Elijah here is a man who's completely vulnerable. He's literally on his own, putting his life on the line. He's the only voice left and he says that I'm going to restore this altar to what it was originally purposed for. What idolatry is ruined, I'm going to rebuild. And I'm going to rebuild it so this is a place where the glory of God can be seen. That's what he's rebuilding it for. And this is the thing. The truth is worship is a costly act. True worship is a costly business. Being a people of worship and devotion and rebuilding of what idolatry has stolen is a costly business. 
Now, I've got, um, I've got a one-and-a-half-year-old um, little girl, and she's an absolute dreamboat. We love her to bits. Being a dad is just the greatest thing. But, um, but having a kid is a huge transition. I mean, everything that you take for granted in life just shifts. It's a massive change. But in particular, I don't think I was prepared for the shift in my life, particularly around what devotion, worship, and and um, a connection and communion with God would look like as as a dad. Because um, you know what, I'm I'm tired. You know, toddlers are full on. Sometimes they don't sleep very well. And um, is there any sympathy for that? No, no. I really don't need any sympathy. Um, but I've really felt the Lord saying to me personally more and more over the last couple of months, um, in a pretty strong, firm way, which is exactly what I need. I feel like the Lord's basically saying, go to bed earlier and get up earlier, you idiot. It's like, it's like you've had a kid, but you've changed nothing in your life to ensure that worship is still a priority. A year and a half in, it's taken me to realize that, would you believe? And look, this is a silly little example, a really silly little example. It's not rocket science, but it speaks to this very thing of rebuilding the altar of worship. Am I willing to put the work in? Am I willing just to sacrifice that lion? Am I willing to sacrifice, lion, is there no lions with kids, lion, am I willing to sacrifice that, that like bedtime? Like I'm not going to stay up and watch another terrible show because actually I want to be able to get up before my daughter in the morning so I can spend some time with the Lord. It's going to cost us something. Worship, lives centered around worship is going to cost us something. And our repentance, it leads us to this realignment and rebuilding of what's primarily important. Because when we recognize our misdirection, we can recognize the right direction. And so that's kind of the, the question this morning for you. Is what does it look like to rebuild the altar of worship in your life? What is the Lord asking you today? What is it cost, going to cost you to ensure that the Lord has his rightful place as number one, no other gods before me. What's that going to cost? Because I can assure you it's probably going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It could cost us time, energy, reputation, finance, job, security, image. But let's pray this morning. Ask the Spirit, what is he asking of us? And when he speaks, because he will speak, let's go for it. Let's drop it and let's press on. So coming into land here. And then um, Elijah's rebuilt the altar, this place of worship where the glory of the Lord can be seen. And what happens? What happens at the rebuilt altar? The fire of the Lord falls. It burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. It licked up the water in the trench. I love like the extravagance of that image. Could have just said the fire fell and burned up the sacrifice, but it's like, no, no, no. There's something of these words putting flesh to the power of our God when he's moving. It fell. The Lord fell and it burned up everything that there could be seen. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And this is the key thing in all of this talk, is that we can repent, we can rebuild, we can play our part but without a move of God, it's like we cannot change a thing. It's like all we can do is pave the way for his spirit to move, for his fire to fall. 
And we see earlier in the story, Elijah basically does his best at arguing his point for the people. He says in verse 21, he says, Elijah went before the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the basically next thing it says, but the people said nothing. Talk is one thing, right? For those of us who've got a vocation of talking quite a lot, um, it's pretty discouraging. But talk is one thing. But a move of God, that's a whole other thing. Talk is cheap, but a move of God is power. And a move of God can change the human heart. Only a move of God can change the human heart. And now, look, I normally hate intensity, right? I flee from intensity. But I love this story because it just reminds us of the real power and the punch and the glory of the God that we worship. As if there could be any doubt in the people's mind that this was God. How we long for a move of the Spirit in our time. Do we long for that? Do we long for the Spirit to turn hearts, to turn lives, to anchor us and point us towards our true trajectory of Christ? And only a move of God can ever do it. Let's, let's just put that down there. Only a move of God can ever do it. But at the same time, He invites us to play our part. He really does. He invites us to be a people of pure, wholehearted worship, re rejecting and repenting anything which draws us away from His name. And he invites us to cultivate lives and spaces and rebuild places where his glory can be seen, where his fire can fall, and where he's most welcome to move in. Now, I'm coming into land with this story, but um, we've talked a lot over the, over the last few years of the Hebridean revival um, here at KXC. And don't worry if you've heard it loads of times, I'm not going to tell the story. But there's two people in particular that I really want to highlight in this story in terms of what it looks like to rebuild the altar of worship. Um, and what I want to do is draw a highlight to these two women in 1949 called Peggy and Christine Smith. And I've actually got a picture of them, believe it or not. So this is Peggy and Christine St Smith. And in the middle here is a Scottish evangelist called Duncan Campbell. And um, I mean, he's pretty fly looking here with the two, with the two ladies on his arms, isn't he? It's, um, and so Peggy and Christine were 84 and 82 years old. Peggy was blind. I assume it's Peggy on the right, who has no idea where the camera is, who is blind. Um, and, and, uh, and Peggy was blind, and her sister almost bent double with arthritis. But these ladies understood something about rebuilding the altar, altar of worship ready for a move of God. And this is how Duncan Campbell, the Scottish evangelist in the middle, who was a central figure during this revival, this is how he recalls Peggy and Christine. He says this, now, I'm sure that you'll be interested to know how, in November 1949, this gracious movement began on the island of Lewis. Two old women, one of them 84 years of age and the other one 82, one of them stone blind. It's a, it's a really prominent feature of this story, isn't it? They love her being blind. Were greatly burdened because of the appalling state of their own parish. It was true that not a single young person attended public worship. Not a single young man or young woman went to the church. They spent their day perhaps reading or walking. I mean, for us, if our young people were reading and walking, we would call that a revival in itself. <laughs> but here we go. This, was, this greatly troubled the ladies. Um, where was I? Not a, they spent their day perhaps reading or walking, but the church was left out of the picture. And these two women were greatly concerned 
and they made it a special matter of prayer. A verse gripped them. I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. They were so burdened that both of them decided to spend so much time in prayer twice a week. And on a Tuesday night, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock in the evening and remained on their knees until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Two old women in a very humble cottage. And one night, one of the sisters had a vision. Now remember, in revival, God works in wonderful ways. A vision came to one of them, and in the vision, she saw the church of her fathers crowded with young people, packed to the doors, and a strange minister standing in the pulpit. And she was so impressed by the vision that she sent for the parish minister. And of course, he knowing the two sisters, knowing that they were two women who knew God in a wonderful way, he responded to their invitation and called at the cottage. And that morning, one of the sisters said to the minister, this is so punchy, it's brilliant, you must do something about it. And I would suggest that you call your office bearers together and that you spend the night with us at least two nights in prayer in the week. Tuesday and Friday, if you gather your elders together, you can meet in a barn, a farming community. Yes, you can meet in a barn. And as you pray there, we'll pray here. I love that. It's like, we're going to stay in the cottage. <laughs> you guys, you can go meet in the barn. Um, but we're going to stay here. Well, that was what happened. The minister called his office bearers together. Seven of them met in a barn to pray on a Tuesday and on a Friday. And the two old women got on their knees and prayed with them. And later in this story of revival, the fire of God falls. There's a move of his spirit. Hundreds come to faith. And the vision that those two women see comes to life. The church packed with young people turning their lives to Christ. The church is alive. And Duncan Campbell, um, he later says this. He says, we may organize, we may plan, but until we get on our knees and do business with a covenant-keeping God, we shall not see revival. How can we have, or we can have our conventions and our conferences recalling the wonderful times that we've had, but what we want and desperately need is a fresh manifestation of the mighty power of God. Duncan Campbell could stand here today and say exactly that, and it stands just as true as it did 50 years ago. What we need is a fresh manifestation of the mighty power of God. So today the call for us is to be a people of repentance and recognition for our misdirected loves and the people who are willing to take up the cost of rebuilding the altar of worship in our lives, in our church, in our city, so that we might see this fire of God fall in our lives, in our time, and draw people to him.